Uh, Father God, we just want to come before you as, uh, as we approach your word and just ask you to illuminate it for us, uh, that to speak to us through it, uh, so that it's not just words written long ago, but uh, words that are alive because you're in it. Uh, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right. In 2022, uh, in America, we set a record. Uh, it's probably a record for many of us. It's even hard to wrap our minds around uh, because it's such a big number. But in 2022, uh, we, uh, we crossed a threshold, uh, the threshold of $63 billion uh, paid out in class action lawsuit settlements. That was just in 2022. It was a new record. It's the highest we've ever been. That doesn't include, that's just class action suits. That doesn't include the billions paid out in personal injury lawsuits or medical malpractice or car accidents or all of those different things uh, that we sue one another for. Right? An unbelievable amount of money is spent and changes hands each year to figure out who is responsible for pain inflicted or losses incurred. It's just normal for us. It's how our society works. We're inundated with it, right? If I need a lawyer, who should I call, right? Like, what's that number, 1-800? Oh, we see we got a couple. Call, <laughs> right? So, right, like, 1-800-CALL-SAM was the one I figured everybody would jump on, right? You know, if you watch, if you watch sports, he's on there. He also runs his ads during Jeopardy, so it really kind of gets both ends of the spectrum there, doesn't it? Uh, but we spend a, an insane amount of money trying to figure out whose responsibility something is. The reason I bring that up this week is because this kicks off a new mini-series in Genesis. If you were with us through Matthew last year, you realize we went through the book of Matthew for an entire year, and we broke it up into these little mini-series. Uh, we're doing the same thing this year with the book of Genesis, uh, breaking up each of our little sections into mini-series. So we just finished the beginning, right, the beginnings of the beginnings, and now we're going to move for the next four weeks into another section that we're calling uh, My Brother's Keeper, in which we're going to focus on this idea of responsibility, uh, right? The question, am I my brother's keeper, and how do we interact with that? So we came out of a series in which we started the book of Genesis. We talked about where we start the story matters. We talked about the starting at the beginning matters. When Jesus starts to tell his story, he pushes it all the way back to Genesis, we talked about Genesis 1 that gives us this picture of this big, massive, transcendent God. We talked about Genesis 2 then that takes the big God and makes him very personal and close. We shifted then to Genesis 3, which is the story of how things broke. They're broken the relationships that we have with God, with each other, and with nature around us. Lisa then wrapped it up in a, in a series, or just talking about how the rhythms of Genesis 1 should mirror the rhythms of our life. And this week, we keep moving forward in Genesis. And so we're going to still need the different tools we used last time, especially in the beginning of Genesis. There's so many strange parts to the stories that we're reading. We talked about the tools that we're going to use to help us understand the pieces of Scripture that we're in. The questions we should ask ourselves whenever we approach a piece of Scripture. What kind of story am I reading is the first one. Right? What kind of story am I reading here? Do we see any elephants in the room? What are the weird things in the story? Right? Like maybe there's a talking snake. Well, that's an elephant in the room. What should we do with that? We'll see some of those again today. And then what patterns do we see in the story? All of those pieces help us understand what's going on. And hopefully you've been able to see through the first part of this series that the first few chapters of Genesis are filled with layers of meaning. And we'll see that again today. See, the beginning of Genesis is an interesting read for a, a, a lot of people. 
Um, some of you have been reading it your whole life, so it's not even that strange anymore. But for many new Christians, they get stuck in the first few chapters of the Bible. And it's not surprising, really. Because as soon as you start reading the Bible, the first thing you notice that comes up is, wait, seven days? What do we do with dinosaurs? That's one that comes up all the time, right? If the world's created in seven days, how do we understand dinosaurs? Or snakes talk? We already said that one. That's weird. What do we do with that? And we're going to get some more of that today, some of these strange different things that we'll see at the beginning. But hopefully, like I said, as we've been able to see, they're telling a bigger picture about who God is and how we interact with him. So I want to start today by just reading the entire story, and then we'll start to break down a little bit of what we want to pull out of it. So we're in Genesis 4 today. Genesis 4, verse 1. It says this, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some fruits from the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will it not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you, and you will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer in the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So this is a story most people, I think, know, whether you're Christian or not. It's one that gets told a lot, the story of the first murder in the Bible. Uh, But when we slow down, we start to see that there are a few elephants in this story, a few things that are strange, and there's a few patterns as well. And we also find the question that's going to drive this entire section of Genesis, this question that Cain asks when he's confronted by God, am I my brother's keeper? And so actually, we're going to spend one and a half weeks in this particular passage exploring that particular question. Am I my brother's keeper? We'll start today and talk about one part of it, and then actually come back to it next week, include the genealogy that comes after, and talk about it again from a little bit different angle. But before we dive into that, there's one thing I just wanted to point out quick. Uh, Our story begins today with Adam and Eve having children. And if you're reading it in the NIV, your translation probably says, Adam made love to Eve. But does anybody remember the, what that word is in Hebrew from two weeks ago? Yada, yeah, that's, 200, that's great. I actually didn't think anybody would remember it, so well done, great. It's yada, right? And so it, we talked about last week that when the, when, the, when the serpent comes to Eve and says you can know the knowledge of good and evil, we pointed out the fact that, that she already knew 
what evil was. She knew she shouldn't eat from the tree, but she hadn't experienced it yet. We mentioned that that same word, the word to know, yada, uh, would come back up again in chapter 4, and that's what we see at the beginning here. When Ad, with, so it, the, the most straightforward translation from the Hebrew would be Adam yada to Eve, right? New Eve. And it is a euphemism for, for what it says in your, your particular parts of, or your, your, um, for that intimate kind of knowing, even in this case of the sexual kind of knowing. <clears throat> so we see that right off the beginning. Also, as one of you caught last week, you, somebody asked me after we got, or two weeks ago, when we were talking about yada, they asked me if that was the root of, they must be a Seinfeld fan, if it's the root of yada, yada, yada. And it is. That's where that comes from, right? You know, you know, you know. That's what they're saying. So now you know. So you know a little bit of Hebrew, you know a little bit of Yiddish too. So there you go. Not bad, right? Uh, all right, back to our story today. So we, we start the story, Adam and Eve have two sons. They have Cain and they have Abel. And they both offer sacrifice. One good, the other isn't. And so Cain kills Abel, and when he's confronted, he asks the all-important question, am I my brother's keeper? And that's the question, like I said, we're going to park on for a little bit here. Now, if I were to ask all of you, what's the, what's the right answer to that question? Am I my brother's keeper? The answer is, what's that? No, some people say. Interesting. That's, now, I, it's, it's interesting because was, was, uh, when I was reading through the rest of the pastor's answers, we all assumed everybody would say yes, right? That, yeah, Scripture says that we're our brother's keeper. Uh, Seth answered no. So did Jen, by the way. So that's, uh, and I'm like, wait a minute. No, you're supposed to say yes. And, uh, uh, and, but it actually, what you guys will catch is what we're going to talk about today. Because the, the follow-up question on that is, um, should we be? Is that a good thing to even want to be? Because the first thought I had was, of course, yes. Right? That's, what it seemed, that's what it seems to be suggesting in this scripture as, as Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? And God's almost like, well, you kind of should be. You, you messed up here. We also see that through the life of Jesus in some other places. But if we take an extra minute with this question, we probably get to where Jen and Seth are. <clears throat> uh, because if we, because when we really start to break it down, do we really believe that, or sh- even should we? When we ask that question, "Am I my brother's keeper?" We're essentially asking, "Am I responsible for him? Am I responsible for your decisions? And if so, to what degree?" It's a tricky question to answer, isn't it? And I think that's probably why we get those different answers. Because even in the story we have here, our answer gets a little confusing. When Cain's offering isn't accepted, and we're going to talk more about that later, he gets upset, and God knows something up, something's up, and so he says this. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what's right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what's right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Essentially, what God's saying here is, Cain, you are personally responsible for your own actions. You must rule over your temptation. So Cain, for when God is speaking to Cain, he seems to suggest that Cain has personal responsibility here, which is interesting. And when we really start to think about that question of responsibility towards our brothers and sisters, it can get really, really messy really quickly. It's complicated. Now, I've shared it from up here before. There's addiction in my family. And so then, if there's addiction in your family too, am I responsible to fix the person who's an addict? Now, I know there are a few more of you out there who've lived in that space, too. 
And as we all know, if you've tried to ever walk with somebody in an addiction, they don't get better unless what? Unless they want to, right? I mean, you can force them into rehab. You can force them into all of these different spaces. But a person doesn't get better unless they want to. They need to own it for themselves. Or we could keep going on in that complexity. What about the person who's in an abusive relationship? Are they required to stay in that situation at all costs? Now, there have been parts of church tradition that have said yes and caused damage because of it. Is that how we're our brother's keeper? Now, if you are in an abusive relationship, there is help out there. There's hope. But it can even be on more simple things as well. The next time you go out to dinner, do you need to keep an eye at everyone on the bar? What if one of them drinks too much and drives home and hurts somebody? Is that your responsibility? Are we our brother's keeper in that space? It doesn't take long to realize that the answer to Cain's question isn't an easy one. We mentioned at the beginning of the service today that we spend billions of dollars every single year trying to figure out who's responsible. It confirms the complexity that we're seeing here already. At what level am I responsible for you? At what level am I my brother's keeper? And where does my responsibility end and your own personal responsibility start? That's what we're going to explore over the next couple weeks here. Now, I would argue that the answer to this question is so complex and so important that it's one of the main themes that runs to the beginning of Scripture, definitely in the first 11 chapters of Scripture. Actually, Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, which we have a picture of here, his books on the beginning of Genesis, by the way, are phenomenal. He's also passed, unfortunately. But, uh, but he actually will argue the question of responsibility is actually the main question the whole Bible is trying to answer. He emphasizes this point so dramatically. So through the whole mini-series, we're going to be looking at the question, specifically at different kinds of responsibility, and how do we interact with that and with the people around us. So this morning, let's see if we can figure out what the story of Cain and Abel is teaching, or at least one point of what it's teaching us today. And let's start by identifying a few elephants in the room in the story that we just read. Now the first main question that pops up when I read the story of Cain and Abel, maybe you're similar in this, is why does God accept Abel's offering and not Cain's? Has anybody ever thought about that before? Right? It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's the first thing that popped into my mind. Does God like meat better than vegetables? Right? I don't, that's not the answer. That's not why. Now, we could camp here for a while and have a whole conversation about the sacrificial structure, and we're going to do a little bit of that, but not the entire thing. But instead, there's, there's one big takeaway uh, that I want us to understand. And it could be easy to miss, especially in English, but there are, there's a key difference between the two offerings. What we see is Cain brings some produce to God some of the, the, from the fields that he was, he was tending. And maybe you're thinking, uh, well, that's better than nothing, right? Why wouldn't God accept it if, if, if Cain's offering him something? Why wouldn't God be happy with that? Is he just kind of fickle in this case? Now, last series, we said it often, where we start the story matters and how we view God matters a lot to our understanding of Scripture. And that's on full display again here this morning. Many of us, when we think of the Old Testament offering system, the sacrificial system, we approach it through the mindset of a Greek or a Babylonian or an Egyptian, not the way the Old Testament describes God in this system. What do I mean by that? Have you ever asked yourself the question, why does God require sacrifice at all? 
It's a tricky question, and if we really start to think about it, we realize that we, many times we don't have great answers for that. Now, the most common answer that I get is, is something, around the, 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 uh, something around the idea of gratitude, right? We give sacrifices to be grateful for what God has given. If we, have to, we want to show him how grateful we are that he's given us uh, what he's given us. Now, I want to push on the edges of that this morning, though, because in the sacrificial system, there's a, there's a component of gratefulness to be sure, right? Being thankful for what God has given us is, is a flourishing posture in our lives. Just being thankful in general is a flourishing posture. When we can focus more on the positive things in our life, which we all know we're more prone to focus on the negative, uh, that is a flourishing posture, and it creates a deep-seated joy when we understand that we are blessed. But for many of us, there's a subtlety to that, to that thinking uh, that has a deeper impact than we realize. Because the subtext of the answer around gratitude is that we give, God, we give to God to show him that we're thankful for what he's given, which implies a need to prove to God that we're really thankful. Following with me? That we give to kind of prove to him that I actually appreciate the stuff that you've given to me. In other words, God will only really know that I'm thankful if I give back. Now that's problematic. Because if we slow down and think that through, it's a difficult position to defend. Does God really not know our hearts? Seems like the rest of Scripture suggests he does. And so what we end up with is what I mentioned before. We're thinking about the sacrificial system like a Greek or a Babylonian or an Egyptian. Zeus or Ra or Ishtar work by saying, you show me how grateful you are by what you give to me. Prove it to me. Give to me to show me how much you love me is how Zeus or Ra or Ishtar thinks. It's all about the ego of the God itself. But it forces us to ask the question, is that how Yahweh works, how Yahweh God works? I don't think it is. Suggest said, what if the sacrificial system isn't for God at all? At least not in the way that we just described it. What if the sacrificial system was given to teach us something? What if it was de designed to bring us closer to God? To me, the Bible is pretty clear on that one. Later in Scripture, God will say to the Israelites, you followed every single one of my decrees, you gave the sacrifices the way you, I asked you to, and it's a stench in my nostrils. I despise it. I reject it. What does that have to do? Why? Because you gave it with the wrong heart. You didn't do it in the way that I asked you to. Or in the New Testament, you give a tenth of your, your dill even. You, you tithe everything, and yet there are poor people all around you. You missed the point. You did the thing, and you missed the point. So if that's true then, what were the offerings supposed to teach? I would argue they were supposed to teach a reliance on God. God says to Cain and Abel, I will support you. I'll take care of you, and I need you to fully trust that. Because the purpose of humanity was always to be in relationship with God, to let him be God and to have them not be God. We saw that in Genesis 3. So what God says to Cain and Abel, give me the best you have and trust that you'll have enough when the time comes. Which brings us back to the offering of Cain and Abel. Scripture says Cain gave some of his produce, but contrasted, Abel brought the fat portions from his firstborn flock. Cain brought some, Abel brought his best. 
the subtlety being communicated there is that Abel trusts that even if I give God my best, I'll have enough because I know God will take care of me. Cain, on the other hand, keeps his best and just gives God some and so learns nothing about what that whole process was supposed to teach. So why does God reject Cain's offering? Is it because he's fickle or because he didn't taste good enough or he likes meat more than vegetables? No, of course not. That's how Zeus works, not how Yahweh works. Why does God reject Cain's offering? Because if he accepts it, he actually teaches Cain a damaging lesson. He says to Cain, that what he would be saying to Cain is that if his offering was about, uh, was about God, that he, then he would be like Zeus. He'd be hungry and so you need to give him some food. That giving him something is better than nothing because it was about God, not about Cain's heart. Are you tracking with me there? If God actually accepts Cain's gift, he is affirming that he is like Zeus. That you need to just give to him because it's about him, not about Cain. I feel like I said that confusing and I wish I had done better. Hopefully you got it. So we gain insight into Cain's heart process through that. He's focused on himself, on his protection, on his ability to provide for himself, on protecting his reputation as well because he gets angry when it's not accepted. So we hold on to that for just a second because it continues to play itself out. Cain and Abel both give sacrifices. Abel learning the lesson that was intended, that if I give my best, God will take care of me. Cain fundamentally misunderstanding God. Cain sees that Abel's gift has been accepted and his is not, and so he gets angry. And we see again, the Lord says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. This particular verse here is, I believe, the key to understanding this whole story. There's so much going on in here. What we see is that Cain is upset, his ego is bruised, and so God goes to talk to him. He says, brother, why are you upset? If you do what's right, if you learn the lesson that was intended to be taught, that you can rely on me, that I care for you, that I'll give you what you need, won't it go well for you? God says, See, I think it's hard to wrap our minds around this unless we spend a good amount of time with small children. Have you ever had a child who struggled to learn something you were trying to teach them? I, I have, right? Have, you, have they ever been upset with you in that process and started yelling? Some of you are smiling. Some of you are like experiencing that now, right? They get upset with you in that process. They do the thing. Let's say they're trying to like tie their shoes or something. So they do it poorly. And so you say to them, hey, that was close, but not yet. Try again. And then they get angry, right? Like, I did my best. I've heard that before, right? You're like, yeah, and it's still not right, right? You didn't do, it didn't accomplish the task that you wanted to accomplish, right? As a parent or an aunt or a teacher, if we accept all effort of any kind as good enough, to, if, I never, if, if, if my kids try to tie their shoes but never actually succeed in it and then I just do it for them because they got angry, do they ever learn how to tie their shoes? Right? They don't. And so it's not that I'm rejecting them, but I am going to declare that, hey, you're, the, the, the goal that we are trying to do here with tying our shoes isn't accomplished. So we're going to have to try again. Right? That's kind of what's going on here in this particular story. See, God isn't rejecting Cain. He's not valuing him less Cain, Cain just tried to tie his shoes, but he hasn't learned it yet. 
And if you do it that way, it doesn't work. So God's meeting came like a father, assuring him of his value and inviting him into the lesson once again. But God also sees something in Cain. He sees a seed that's found its root in Cain's heart. It's the one that we saw earlier. That Cain has this focus on himself, which is where another one of our Bible reading tools comes in handy, the one of patterns. See, God comes to Cain and invites him into a reliance and relationship with him. God's inviting Cain to allow him to be God and to, that, so that he can take care of him. And to have Cain rely on him is, he's inviting Cain to rely on God as God rather than on himself. But Cain is wrestling with the desire to be the God of his own life. If I keep stuff for myself, I don't need to rely on God. And so Cain pushes back on that. Which reminds us again of what happens in Genesis 3. And so when God comes to Cain, what does he say? He says, be careful. If you, continue to choose, if you continue to choose the path that you're on, not doing what's right for you or by me, then he says that sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. Now the phrase there, that sin is crouching at your door, is an interesting way to phrase it. In your mind's eye, when you picture sin crouching at your door, what do you picture? Anybody? You picture like an animal ready to pounce, Right? That's right, like a cat, like ready to leap. That's what I do, at least. It, 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 that, which is the image it's supposed to conjure up. The image that's used both in Hebrew and in English is this idea that there's this beast or animal or something crouching, ready to pounce for when you just step out and it will own you. <clears throat> which is exactly what it's aiming for. See, what this story is doing, the story of Cain and Abel, is intentionally pointing us back to the story that happened right before it. It's pointing us back to Genesis 3. In that story, what happens? An animal, a serpent, lures Adam and Eve into sin, right? It brings them into that space. In Genesis 4, sin is described as an animal ready to pounce. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, there is some similarity there, sure, but it's not the strongest. Okay, I can give you that. But it's not the only thing that ties us back into that space. In our story of Cain and Abel, we see that Cain gives in to sin, he kills Abel, and so God comes to him and confronts him with what? A question, right? Cain, where's your brother? After Adam and Eve sin, what happens? God confronts them. Adam, where are you? Both times with a question. How does Adam respond? He says, well, it was her fault, this woman that you put here with me. It's not my fault, it's it's her fault, or maybe yours, for giving, it to, giving her to me. When God confronts Cain, how does he respond? Is it my responsibility? Am I my brother's keeper? And it just keeps going. After the fall, what happens? God pronounces a curse on the land. After Cain falls, what does God do? We see it in verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. We're moving to verse 12. When you work the ground... It will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. When Adam falls, there's a curse given. When Cain falls, it's the identical curse given again. When Adam and Eve fall, they're sent out of the garden. When Cain falls, he's sent out of the community. Even the directions are the same. Adam and Eve are sent east of Eden 
Where is Cain sent? To the land of Nod, which is where? East of Eden. In these particular stories, the patterns of Genesis 3 are layered right over the top of Genesis 4. Finally, when Adam and Eve, as they are leaving the garden, what does God do? He provides them with protection. He clothes them, clothes them. What happens to Cain? When he's sent out, God gives him protection as well, a mark of protection in this case. There's actually even more, but I think the point is made. These two stories are supposed to be paralleling each other. See, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve failed to learn the intended lesson of the tree. We saw that two weeks ago, and therefore they experienced the consequences of sin in their life. What we see here in Cain's story is that it is possible to not learn the lesson intended by the punishment for not learning the lesson of the tree. In other words, now that you experience evil in the world, now that you die it, it's had a corrupting effect on your person. You want it to be the God of your own life, and that desire doesn't go away. In other words, sin is continually crouching at your door, Cain, or Brent, or anyone here at Harbor Life. It's just the reality of the world that we live in post-fall. So God says, master it, or it will master you. But realize that God's statement is more than that. By his statement to Cain, he's saying that you can master it. Now, to be clear, we're all going to fail from time to time. We're all going to fall short. Uh, Nobody's perfect. The scripture is very clear on that, too. I'm not trying to throw judgment out here. But the temptation that we get get in the living post-fall is this. It's twofold. First, it's easy for us as humans just to believe that our struggles are too big, that there is no hope. And God's speaking against that here, that there's always hope. Now, I want to also be very clear here, that when, when we talk about mastering our sin, it's easy for us just to say, buck up, try harder, tough it out. That's not what we're suggesting either. Sometimes the first step to trying to get on top of our sin is realizing that we need help. In, in America, too often, we get too individualistic. We think it's all only just about me. That's not how the Bible talks about it at all. It's all communal. Actually, one of the major themes in the Bible is this idea of insula. It's actually how Old Testament um, families used to live. So in, if, wherever you lived in the, in the ancient, or if you lived in one of the small Jewish towns in the Old Testament, what would happen is there'd be fa- small family units. So maybe dad and his brothers lived in one spot. When I grow up then, I build my room on next, on the, onto my father's house. And so, these, so these, uh, these communities were just filled with close family members. They called it an insula. They always were there to take care of each other. It was never meant to be an individualistic thing. It was always a communal thing. The same is true when we're talking about our mastery of sin or, or things that we're wrestling with in our lives. It is absolutely not a failure to say in that moment, hey, I can't do this on my own and I need help. That's appropriate and good. But the hope that God's giving here is to say that in the help, there is always hope that we can rise above these particular things. Also, it's equally easy, easy for us to fall into a different kind of thinking as well. Maybe I could master it, but insert your justification here. I could do it, but you just don't understand that when I'm interacting with this person, there's nothing else I can do. 
Or I could do it, but this alternative thing is affecting the way that I do it. Adam and Eve, I, I could have resisted, but Eve made me do it. Cain, I could have resisted, but I'm not responsible for Abel. Jonathan Sachs, again, argues that this is the birth in Scripture of victim culture. He says it this way, In the past, men blamed the stars, the fates, the furies, the gods. Today, they blame their parents, their environment, their genes, the educational system, the media, the politicians, and it keeps going on and on and on. Now, I don't want to misunderstand this either. It's really easy to take a quote like that and just assume that no one's a victim. That's not true. There are real victims in the world. That's absolutely true, and we should advocate on their behalf. But the point we're trying to make is that it's easy for us, like Cain, to justify our actions because it wasn't our fault. We all have that internal monologue, don't we? I would do the right thing at work, but my boss. Or if my wife had shown me more affection I needed, I wouldn't have... Insert whatever. Well, I wasn't going to go to Krispy Kreme, but the red light was on. (laughs) Glenn, you know, right? We talked about that before. I don't know where Glenn is, but we know. We know. That red light gets you. Is there anything better than the red light Krispy Kreme? Let's just stop and think about that for a minute. Like, when they get cold, they actually, like, feel like they take up room in your stomach. But when they're fresh, it's like they are made out of air and delicious. So, I don't know how they do it. It's kind of like magic, uh, but it's amazing. And then you eat six of them, and then they get cold, and you're like, oh, not good. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, The point is, it's really easy to fall into the same trap that Adam and Eve did, or Cain did. Right? Sin crouches at our door, and in this story, God assures Cain of its presence and of his ability to overcome it, if he were to so choose, and his responsibility to overcome it if he wants to flourish. See, the serpent enticed Eve by leveraging her based instincts. She was created to eat, and then God asked her to overcome that desire. The same is true with Cain here. His natural instinct is to protect himself, and what God is saying is, I want you to let me do that instead. See, we live in a world where sin is constantly trying to pull us towards our animalistic instincts, towards our cardinal desires. But God created us to be different from the animals in that way. Created us with the ability to choose the voice of God over our base instincts or desires. To live a life above them, in control of them rather than the other way around. Animals don't have control over their base instincts, maybe a little bit. You can train a dog to let it sit there for a minute. But eventually those things come come back to them. And so God then in this world is calling us back to our original calling, the calling of mastering those those base instincts when they don't lead us to flourishing. And so in this story, we see that God is asking us to take personal responsibility for what we do, for our heart postures, to see them for what they are and the consequences they may or may not produce, whatever that might be for you. We all wrestle with different things. Some of us, it's food or drink. Maybe it's sex or money or power or followers or likes. Whatever it is that keeps pulling you away from what you know is right. What we see in this story is that sin crouches at our door and God tells us in this story that we can say no. Paul actually goes on to make that argument even more clearly. In 2 Corinthians 10 where he says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. 
In this story, hopefully we can, many of us can see ourselves into this space like Cain to say, hey, I'm not responsible for any of this. It's all outside of my, outside of my circumstances. In this story, God says to Cain, though, sin is crouching at your door and you need to master it. All of us in our lives have things that we know aren't right, things that are holding us back from flourishing. God doesn't come to Cain and reject him as person. That's not what we're saying here today. But he's inviting him to actually take ownership over the things that are there in his heart and do something about them. God says to Cain, you are responsible for what you do. And he assures him, you can do what's right, even if it's hard. And so that's our challenge this week, is to reflect on the areas in our lives in which we realize that there's something that's crouching at our door, that thing that continually calls us out of the kind of life we were created to live, out of the flourishing that God desires for us and that's holding us back from that space. Similar to the way we talked about it in Genesis 3, what are the things that are working on mastering you and do you need to take ownership of them? What are those things that you've internally self-justified over and over and over and over again? In men's group this week, we spent a little bit of time talking about just that idea. We talked about what the purpose of even confession is to each other. Right? Why do we confess to each other? We've said it a number of times here. When we, what, what confession does is it breaks our internal justifications. When you, actually t- when you actually confess the thing that you did, what it do- what it, it's not, we don't confess to God because he needs it, similar to the sacrificial system. God asks us to confess because it breaks this cycle that Cain is in. It takes the thing that we've been justifying inside and, and forces us to bring it out into the light. This is the thing that I did. And if you've ever actually done that, you know that when you take the thing that you've internally justified out, it looks way uglier than you hoped it did, Right? It's just the fact of the matter. The thing inside your head, it's not a big deal because of all these reasons. Then you admit it to somebody and you go, ooh, okay, maybe that is affecting me more than I desired. Sin is crouching at our door. Those things that we're internally justifying want to devour us. And what God is saying is that we have the ability to overcome those things. In just a few minutes, we're going to take communion. Communion is actually a perfect representation of that particular idea. That we all have brokenness and messed up things in our lives. But with the power of Christ, we can overcome those. That we can take ownership of what, we, what, what we're doing uh, and actually set it right. Not because God doesn't care about us, but precisely the opposite. Because he cares about us so much that he doesn't want to see us hurt ourselves anymore. Now, clearly, that then leaves us with another big question. When, where, and how are we responsible for each other? We'll tackle that next week. We'll take a look at the story again through the lens of Abel and see how that works. We're going to take communion. Communion is the practice that we do together, and it symbolizes a number of different things that we've talked about this morning. 
Communion is, it, it reminds us of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, that while, that while we're broken, that while we, we haven't done the things that we were meant to, that Christ came and died for us anyway. Communion is, the, is a declaration that even though we, that sin crouches at our door, it's not our master. That its back has been broken and that we can overcome the things that are holding us back collectively together. Which is also the other beautiful part of communion. The table isn't a, a place where we come to alone. It's a place we come to together. Because as weird as it may seem to us sometimes, this faith walk, this church thing that God has asked, invited us into, he's done it because we can't do our faith lives alone. We can't, do the, we can't walk with Jesus by ourselves. And communion is a reminder of that as well. We all come to the same table eating the same loaf and drinking the same kind of juice, not out of the same cup because of germs, but you know. Communion is the practice of admitting to ourselves that we all have brokenness in our lives. It's a declaration that we need Christ as well, and also the declaration we need each other. Each of us has fallen short. Each of us has failed to master sin in one way or another, and each of us has been hurt because of that or maybe hurt someone else. But communion is a reminder that, that our failure is not what defines us in Christ. It's a reminder that Christ has defeated death, and because of that, sin isn't our master. And so communion is an invitation to affirm or reaffirm the acceptance of that gift in our lives. And so our table at Harbor Life is open to anyone who wants to accept Christ's love uh, in your life, whether you have already or today for the first time. So just a minute, I'll invite you to come forward and to take a piece of bread uh, in, a, in a cup of juice and then invites you to go back to your seats and just reflect on what we talked about this morning. Because as we come to the table, there is no G- Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe, dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if anyone has a grievance against someone. And forgive as the Lord forgave you. Over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Now hear Jesus' words from Luke 22, 14 through 20. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins, for I tell you that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He said, take and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He then took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat it, Remember me. Likewise, he took the cup. He said, this is my blood shed for you, a sign of the new covenant. When you drink it, remember me. Will you pray with me? Father God, we realize that this morning when we, that we all come uh, with different areas in which we know sin is crouching at our door. Different areas where we've self-justified or said are okay or not taken seriously. Lord, too many of us know that when we don't take that seriously, that when sin is crouching at our door, it seeks to devour us. And unfortunately, some of us are maybe in that space this morning. 
where it feels like our sin is devouring us, the places in which we've missed the mark, we've missed the flourishing that you intended for us, is just eating us up. Lord, I pray that for those who are in that space, that first and foremost, that they, can, they know that even in the midst of areas in which they feel like a failure, you've declared they are not, that they are beloved children of God, that you care for them, that you see them, that you value them, that they're whole. And because of that, give us the power to master our sin, not because we need to do that to be valuable, like we said, but because you love us so much, you desire to see us flourish. God, may each of us take the areas in our lives which we know aren't the way they ought to be and take them seriously. Give us the strength to master them. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.